and welcome to the Fromer Travel Show. I'm your host, Pauline Fromer. So glad to have you along today. And we're going to discuss a serious issue. What the bleepity bleep is happening with the airlines and why uh, they've been, I don't I think the only word for uh, the phrase for them is, is an utter disaster this summer. Uh, to help us unpack that is Bill McGee. He is a senior fellow for the American Economic Liberties Project, which is a nonprofit devoted to addressing corporate malfeasance. And I think there's a lot of that in this story. Uh, welcome back, Bill, to the Fromer Travel Show. Thanks so much, Pauline. It's always a pleasure. Well, it's a pleasure to speak to you. And you make the point in a recent article you did for USA Today uh, that the airlines are pretty good at laying the blame elsewhere for all of the problems they've been having this summer. And uh, to to give them their due, yes, we are living in the time of climate change. So yes, we are experiencing far more severe storms this summer than we have maybe than we did maybe five or ten years ago. But that's just a small piece of the puzzle, right? No question. Um, you know, as you know, Pauline, I used to work in airline flight operations myself. Um, I'm licensed by the FAA as an aircraft dispatcher. And, you know, I can't tell you how many bad summer afternoons I had where I had to cancel flights. That was my job. Uh, but I can tell you emphatically that in the summer of 2022, is weather a factor? Sure. Is air traffic control a factor? Sure. They always are. But that's not the big picture here, that we are looking at tens of thousands of flights being canceled in recent months, and the end doesn't seem to be in sight yet. So the airlines, if they're going to address this, first they need to address you know, the truth and say, well, what, what's at the root of all this? It's clear that there are staffing shortages, particularly pilot shortages. If that's the case, then they need to be forthcoming about that and they need to fix their schedules. Because really what you have, Pauline, is you have flights that are out there in reservation systems, whether it's the airline's own systems or, you know, online travel agencies, whatever. And they're available for sale and people are swiping their credit cards and having money taken out of their accounts. And if there is a reasonable doubt that that, that flight is, is even going to be able to be operated because there isn't enough staffing, well, that has to be addressed. I mean, that, that that's mm -hmm. unacceptable. And- while, you know, as we said, I mean, I, I agree with you. The weather is particularly severe. Um, you know, I just came in from 98 degree temperatures, so we all know how <laughs> yeah. hot it is this summer. Yeah. But the fact is that that's not the big picture here. You know, if we put it in pie chart form, okay, here's a sliver for weather, here's a sliver for air traffic control, but that's not leading to tens of thousands of flights. And and the inexcusable part is that so many of these flights are being canceled at the last minute. And I can and and you're and you say straight out in the article I read in USA Today that these are phantom flights on the schedule that the airlines always knew that even as they were selling them that they wouldn't go. Well, that certainly you know is what what it appears to be, and so my point was you know you and I can talk about this and we can take guesses. We're not on the inside, but the person who is on the inside is the Secretary of Transportation, Pete Buttigieg. And so that's why, you know, we've been calling on him and others have as well to take action here. Now, we know he's met with the airlines. We know he's talked to them. 
this is a very opaque industry. You know, I can't hmm. tell you for yeah. sure why a flight is canceled. I'm not on the inside. I could at one point when I worked in the in- industry, <laughs> but I can't now. Neither can you, neither, neither can anyone else, except for Pete Buttigieg. He has the authority to call the airlines in. We know he's been talking to them. We know he's been trying to take positive steps. And okay, fine, credit for that. But he could do much more. And and right. this caution, you know, to say, well, if there are flights that are being offered for sale, that, that they have the inability to um, to operate, he has to do something about that. Um, and he has to sort of, you know, read the riot act to them so that they stop scheduling flights that are not going to be able to be to be operated. And and look, I mean, there's no pleasant scenario when a flight is canceled. But I think yeah. you and I have both done enough traveling in our time that we'd much rather know a month or two in advance than on the day of the of, of travel or in the airport, you know. Yeah. And that's the yeah. part that's that's inexcusable. Well, you you break this down in your piece. You talk about the fact that the airlines were deregulated about 40 years ago. And that led to uh, giving the airlines a pretty much a free pass uh, to do and and uh, conduct business as they wish. Uh, what changed when the airlines were deregulated, and how has that made it harder to hold them accountable for what's happening today? Right. Well, I think you know there's a couple of factors. One, of course, is the the dramatic industry consolidation that we've seen over the last four decades. Right. And yeah. you know, you and I have never seen an airline industry with so few carriers, so few major carriers. And four airlines, American, Delta, Southwest, and, and, and uh, United, that control about 85% of the U.S. market. We've never mm-hmm. had that type of concentration. We also never had the period that we just went through, 14 straight years from 2007 to last year, 2021, without a single new entrant scheduled passenger airline. So huh. one of the key promises of deregulation, it's all there. It's documented. You don't have to take my word for it. You can pull up the Airline Deregulation Act of 1978. Right in the first sentence, among the promises for deregulation was that there was going to be more new entrants, more more service, more competition, lower fares. You know, they would be competing on service and fares. That was the goal. For a while there in the 80s, we saw, in the 80s, we saw you know, a lot of new entrants. We have not lately. So- hmm. What they used to talk about this this barrier to entry in the, in the regulated days with the Civil Aeronautics Board, um, you know, controlling pricing and routes, um, they used to say the barrier to entry was too high. Well, it's much higher now. We've never, whether in the regulated era or the deregulated era, we never had a fourteen year period without a new airline, ever. So, you know, we've swapped the barrier to entry that was supposedly there during the um, during the regulated era for a barrier to entry from the market, you know, from, from, from Wall Street, because one of the problems is this, this issue of common ownership. You have, you know, a relative handful of investors on Wall Street who own shares not in one airline or two, but in three or four. So they don't want to see new entrants because what do new entrants do? They're often lower cost, lower fare, yeah. and they're going to drive down fares and therefore profitability. So that's one key issue is the consolidation. That's, that's, I think that's sort of like a, an original sin for a lot of the problems we're seeing. But the other problem, you know, that, that, that you mentioned with deregulation, for the last 44 years, there's, been, there's a clause that was added to the Deregulation Act having to do with um, federal preemption, which is a, you know, a fancy legal term, but it basically means that the airline industry can only be regulated on the federal level. 
And so what that means is, and this is, I'm putting in the simplest terms possible, as a consumer, you, me, anyone else buying an airline ticket, we have fewer rights as American citizens buying an airline ticket than we do when we're interacting with virtually any other industry in America. And that's something I think we have to sort of let sink in and absorb because, mm, you know, yeah. people don't realize this. And this is not new. This has been around for 44 years. State uh, legislatures have no authority over the airline industry when they've tried. Like in New York, they passed a passenger bill of rights a few years ago. It was immediately struck down by the courts because of federal preemption. State courts, you cannot sue an airline for the most part in state courts. It's been a few a few minor victories, but for the most part, it will get rejected. Again, federal preemption. And a critical component are the state attorneys general, because very often they can take action, you know, against malfeasance when a, when a company is doing business in their state and they're not treating passenger, uh, passengers, Freudian slip, customers, <laughs> uh, customers yes. well, right? Um, they can take action. Well, we had a case here where I know, you know, we've talked about this, Pauline, the, 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 the situation with these unpaid refunds, these flight refunds is going back more than two years now you know, wow. to the earliest days of COVID. Senator Markey estimates it's somewhere in the neighborhood of upwards of $10 billion in unpaid refunds. We've been waiting My now. Goodness. Two two different administrations, Trump and Biden, two different secretaries of transportation, Elaine Chao and Pete Buttigieg. There has not been a single $1 fine levied against any U.S. airlines. There was one fine Crazy. against Air Canada. So we've been waiting for these quote unquote investigations to conclude. We consumer advocates have spoken to DOT probably a dozen times since March of 2020 about this. And we keep being told there's an investigation ongoing. Well, how long does it take to investigate? The DOT's own complaints from consumers hit record highs in 2020, and they've, they've remained very high. So, yeah. they, so the attorney general in Colorado, Phil Weiser, he put out a statement two years ago saying, if I had the authority, I would take action against Frontier, which is based in his state in Denver. And I would, you know, have take action so that he could make them pay these refunds. And if not, he would, you know, penalize them. Well, we don't, we can't do that under federal preemption. So a big part of the, you know, the, the op-ed in USA Today that you referenced earlier, at American Economic Liberties Project, we believe this federal preemption clause has to go. Yeah. Consumers should have the right of private action so that they can sue airlines as they do any other business if they're mistreated. Sure. State AGs, many of them are very proactive in trying to fight for consumers. They should have that authority and even state legislatures. So we, we, you know, we have a system basically where we're waiting for one person and whether that person is Elaine Chow or Pete Buttigieg, this really isn't about them. I want to be clear. It's not about them or, you know, individuals. It's about the structure. We, mm-hmm. we, you know, I mean, we were all taught as kids about the three branches of government and checks and balances, you know, that's how America is supposed to work here. We basically were waiting for one person to do something. And when that person doesn't do anything, consumers are out of luck. There's really nothing else you can do. Right. And I thought it was fascinating. You mentioned recently Buttigieg made headlines by announcing that he really wants the airlines to allow families to sit together. And you make the point that Congress passed uh, that as a requirement a couple of years ago, right. uh, but it's still not being input by the DOT. What's the holdup? Pauline, I have to tell you, when I saw that press release from the DOT a few weeks ago, I don't even want to say what I said out loud and what I threw across <laughs> the room, because some of us have been fighting this fight for years now. And, yeah. you know, in 2016, Congress passed in the federal, in the um, excuse me, the Federal Aviation Administration Reauthorization Act, they included this, and they directed the DOT to 
not allow airlines to charge fees for families with kids under 13 to sit together. It's incredible that we're more than six years past that now, and we're still waiting mm. for two different DOT secretaries to take action. Now, we spoke to Pete Buttigieg about this last, last year. When I say we, I mean consumer advocates. And I spoke specifically to him via Zoom last summer, July of 2021, about this. And I said, Mr. Secretary, this is low-hanging fruit. Congress already spoke. The last administration chose not to act on it. Okay, well, they're gone and you're here now. So yeah. please, Mr. Secretary, pick up your pen and, and tell the airlines they should not allow kids as young as, and Pauline, I am not making this up. We did a Freedom of Information Act request on this and we saw the results. Kids as young as four, three, two, and yes, Ugh. in two cases, one-year-olds were assigned oh seats goodness. apart from their family. That's an obvious threat, you know, with sexual assaults on board aircraft, which the FBI says is increasing. It's an obvious safety threat if there's an emergency sure. evacuation. It's a health threat with COVID. I mean, it's just, why are we even talking about something so ridiculous? I mean, the airlines, that the fact that they want to nickel and dime, that's one thing. And I'm happy to yeah. talk about that. But to nickel and dime on this issue, that's a safety issue. That's a, it's a moral issue, really. I mean, to, to say to a family, sure, you can have your four-year-old kid. I mean, I read cases of kids with autism, kids with allergies. Uh, you know, you can have your four-year-old kid sit with you, but um, yeah, you're going to have to pay an extra X amount of dollars. It's ridiculous. And Congress already spoke. So yes, again, we're saying to, to Secretary Buttigieg, you can fix this immediately, not take further study, further action, a possible rulemaking. Please do something. Yeah. So to recap, part of the problem is monopolies. We just don't have enough actors. Part of the problem is nobody can actually oversee the airlines except for the Department of Transportation. So right. it has far less oversight than pretty much every other industry. Right. Part of the problem, to my mind, and you didn't address this in the article, but I've been thinking this, at the height of the pandemic, the, the Trump administration gave the airlines millions of dollars of taxpayer money with the promise that the airlines would keep staffing levels high, that they would keep people employed. And then most of them turned around and pushed a lot of employees into early retirement so that they were able to be... Uh, what's the word, cool with the letter of the law, but not with the spirit of it. And the Trump administration didn't put anything into place to oversee uh, this process of them keeping their staffing levels high, not that I can see. Uh, so is that part of the problem? Is that one of the reasons why they're understaffed now? Or is that only a tiny fraction of the issue? Oh, no, that is a huge part of the problem. And 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 yes, I'm happy to talk about this. You know, there's only so much space in an op-ed that you can address all sure. the problems. But um, you're absolutely right. And by the way, it wasn't in the millions, it was in the billions, right? So they billions, got they got $54 billion from you and me and everyone else who pays taxes in the United States. Well, you talk about refunds. We're all doing a refund on that money, as far as I'm concerned. Because as taxpayers, Congress asked for one thing and one thing only, as you pointed out. They said, keep your staffing levels up. You know, at that time, hardly anyone was flying. We know that, you know, right. loads were so far down, planes were empty. We We know that. And they said, keep your staffing up so that when we get through this when boosters are introduced, when people start flying again, there's going to be tremendous pent up demand as we're seeing this summer. And, you know, you'll be ready to roll. 
Well, what did they do? They found a loophole. As you say, letter of the law, spirit of the law. They found a way to entice early retirements. And there are multiple stories about this. Again, you don't have to trust me. All you have to do is Google it. You'll see stories of pilots and flight attendants, all kinds of people that said, well, I was given an offer I couldn't refuse. I was offered so much money to retire early. Well, as far as I'm concerned, that's a violation of what Congress had told them. It may not be a, a letter of the law violation, but it certainly is not what they were supposed to do. Right. And so now, where are we? we? We have a shortage of pilots. When I hear the term pilot shortage, I have to tell you, it's like nails on a blackboard to me because I, I you know, I, I, I use air quotes when I, when I hear the term pilot shortage, because to me, you know, the country that invented the airplane and invented the airline industry, and there's more than 300 million of us, we don't have a pilot shortage. We have a shortage of pilots that want to work for some of the wages that the airline industry wants to pay, huh. particularly the regional airlines, you know, that, that operate right. on behalf of the majors. Right. And, so we also have the same situation with with maintenance, with mechanics for um, for for the airlines. Uh, so, and I've been writing about this for years. You know, I wrote a book, and a big part of it was that the outsourced maintenance. And, and I know we've talked about it. Well, you know, there isn't a mechanic shortage either, but there's a shortage um, of available jobs and available well-paying jobs. So we believe at American Economic Liberties Project, we are well past the the, the time to have a national discussion like we had in the late seventies to talk about proper forms of re-regulating the industry. The, the free market has failed all of us. And yet when something goes wrong, you know, airline executives are hat in hand in Congress asking for money. There wasn't even a question, would there be a bailout? It was right. just how much. So yeah. I would use their own words to make the case because when they go before Congress, they say, well, we're intrinsic to the national economy, the national defense, you know, national uh, everything, infrastructure. Well, okay, fine. So then you're your utility and you need to be regulated as a utility. So, you know, we've been kicking this around at, at American Economic Liberties Project, and we're looking at ways where we can come up with, you know, talk to smart people and get a discussion going. And together we can, we're not saying we have all the answers, but we can come up with some some useful suggestions on how to provide more regulation because this is just not working. The airlines have the best of both worlds. They get an automatic right. bailout from Congress anytime there's a problem but they don't seem to, to answer to anyone. Yeah, I think we've seen in this summer's catastrophic flying situation uh, the evils of deregulation. I mean, that it's there it is, folks, right in front of your nose. Right. Bernie Sanders is calling for fines. Yes. Uh, is that part of the solution? Well, you know, this this situation, as we talked about with federal preemption, it's clear and and look, Pauline, you know, I go back a few years in this industry and I've been around and I've seen many administrations and many secretaries of transportation. To me, I don't look at this through the lens of politics or who's in the White House or red or blue or Democrat or Republican. It's not about that. It is clear that the office of the secretary of transportation across multiple administrations, with a few notable exceptions like Raymond LaHood, secretaries of transportation seem loath to act to enforce, you know, rules on the airlines and to, hmm. to provide penalties. And even in one of, I'm not going to misquote him, but I know that Secretary Buttigieg in one of his interviews, I've been following him pretty closely lately. Um, he said recently, he was asked about that. He was asked about the Bernie Sanders, you know, method of, of penalizing airlines, hitting them with fines over this. Yeah. And um, he said, well, you know, I, I, words to the effect, I don't want to misquote him. He's not, you know, looking for punitive, uh, you know, answers. Well, punitive <sighs> may be the only thing the airlines will listen to at this point. Right. Because if you're yeah. an airline executive right now, Life is pretty good. Think about it. Your planes are absolutely full. We're looking at load factors we haven't seen since World War II, right? The passenger mm. loads are off the charts. 
the fares have gone up consistently since the spring, right? So they're making money, they're filling seats, they're not operating all the flights that they can operate. And yet, where's the penalty? Where's the fine? Where's, you know, they're not paying refunds, they're they're canceling flights at the last moment. And, you know, what, they get a harsh talking to or they get some bad press? They don't seem to care. It's clear there needs to be a stronger sheriff. And so what we're saying at American Economic Liberties Project is, well, if the Secretary of Transportation's office is not going to be effective across multiple administrations, then we need to let other regulators take a crack at it. And the, and the best way to do that quickly, there's more that we need to talk about, but the best way quickly, get rid of federal preemption, get, allow the right of private action, allow citizens and state AGs and state, state courts, state legislatures, let them step into the void here. Because I guarantee you, service would get better if, you know, if state AGs started, you know, started going after, or even state courts started going after the airlines. So if people want to get involved in this fight, if people are listening to this interview and getting pissed off, is there a way? Yes, please stay tuned. We are, (laughs) as we speak, I'll be in Washington next week with my colleagues um, at American Economic Liberties Project. And we are really trying to solicit um, just about everybody that's involved with the industry, including consumers. So stay tuned and I'll keep you in the loop. Um, because we'd like to hear stories from from consumers, and we'd like to have you know we'd like to have support in the in the grassroots level, not just from you know from labor unions and 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 consumer advocates and people that deal with the airline industry, but also you know from from those that are flying and and yeah. and, and are frustrated. Right. Well, thank you so much, Bill, for that for that his, not only history lesson but a, a look at what can be done, why this doesn't have to be this bad. Uh, Thanks again. Absolutely. Thank you, Pauline. He is from the fabulous website, National Parks Traveler, and he has a new book out that we're going to discuss. It's called Essential RVing Guide to the National Parks. Hey, Kurt, thanks for appearing on the Frommer Travel Show. Hey, it's good to be here and catch up with you, Pauline. Yeah, well, you too. Well, I got to ask, how common is it for people to RV nowadays to the national parks. What percentage of the folks who are visiting the national parks are doing it that way, do you think? Uh, boy, I can't I can't give you a percentage. What I can tell you though is ever since whoops, sorry about that. Ever since 2020 when COVID started to to take effect, people just started going and buying RVs and heading out into the the, the public lands to to get their fresh air and the the sales have been off the charts. They um, really forced the manufacturers to um, delay delay some sales. Um, in one case, I believe a manufacturer actually built a whole new plant to try and meet demand. So it's it's a very strong and vibrant portion of um, recreation in America these days. Well, yeah, recreation in general. But do you think it's a specifically a very good way to see the national parks? You know, it, it all depends on who you are. I mean, uh, I'm, I'm 
I'm an aging baby boomer. I started out my <laughs> outdoor career backpacking and hiking. And, uh, you know, as, as your body ages, I, I kind of move from sleeping on the ground, which I still like to do. But I can understand people who, you know, they want a little bit more comfort when they're out in the wilderness, so to speak, because because of the aches and pains that we deal with from a day-to-day basis as you age. And I don't think a lot of people necessarily like sleeping on the ground. Um, frankly, for me, my, my back hurts and sleeping on the ground is one of the best things I can do for it. <laughs> so you're, 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 you know, it's funny. You're kind of making me not want to buy this book. <laughs> why, why should people buy it? I mean, what does it have in it then that will make a trip to the national parks better? Well, let me, let me tell you about why I'm really intrigued by RVing. I mean, as I said, you know, I'm, I'm getting up there, getting long in tooth. And uh, as much as I like sleeping on the ground, you know, if I drive down to a national park, say Canyonlands, I'm based in Utah, Canyonlands National Park, the Needles uh, Campground is gorgeous. It is one of the most gorgeous campgrounds I've seen in the national park system. But if I drive in there on a on a Friday night, late at, late at night, and it's raining, or if I go in the wintertime and it's snowing, I really don't want to get out there in the elements and, and pitch my tent and then, you know, crawl into a wet tent. You know, a few years back, I was in the Wind Cave National Park. I was up there researching a book and I was tent camping. And about seven o'clock that night, the thunderstorm started. And I was in my tent from seven o'clock in the night till 7 a.m. the next morning. And, you know, you can sit up in a tent. You can't stand up unless you have a, a really large tent. So right. if you have an RV... I mean, just think the benefits you pull into the campground, you know, if it's raining, if it's snowing, if it's too cold out there, you just, you know, go into your RV and flip on the lights, turn on the heater and and relax. Well, you're making an excellent uh, pitch for RVs, less so for your book. So what does what does your book tell people about the ups and downs of of doing this activity in the national parks? Do you tell them this park has four sites and this one is the best because, or you have to always get advanced reservations here. So if you're out of luck here, I mean, how, how does the book uh, help travelers who do want to RV in the national parks? You know, Pauline, I've, I've been covering national parks for a long time and enjoying national parks for going on uh, oh, almost six decades now. And the need for this book arises from the fact that um, there are today 423 units of the national park system. Which one of those parks have campgrounds? Which one of those parks have campgrounds that can accommodate RVs? How big of an RV can those campgrounds accommodate? What sort of amenities are there? Do you have full hookups? You know, your your power, your water, your your sewer. Um, are there are there dump stations there? Are there Wi-Fi accessibility there? Until we came out with this book um, this summer, the only real way you could find that out was going park website by park website by park Mm -hmm. website. Wow. You can imagine how time-consuming that is. Yeah, sure. And So So it's a good resource. Yeah. Sorry, go ahead. No, no, no. It's a a good resource and a much-needed resource because we put in one place all the national parks in the United States that have campgrounds that can accommodate RVs. And then, you know, we, that, that's just the overview, but then we tell you, you know, what sort of amenities are there? How big of an RV can you fit into a campground? And then we've also got some, some additional stories on, you know, if you're a, a newcomer 
to RVing, you know, what, what are the basics that you need to know? What, what do you have to be familiar with? And um, we go from there. Yeah. Well, I remember my family and I, many years ago, we did an RVing trip. We got the RV in Arizona, in uh, Phoenix, and we drove to the Grand Canyon and to Sedona in it. And what so surprised me about the experience was how um, how much of a community there was at the campgrounds. I had my two kids with me. They immediately had a peer group to run around and play with. And there was a uh, place at the front where they could borrow toys. There was a shuttle into the park. So we didn't have to always be in the RV. We could also get around in another way. Um, that's what surprised me about RVing and doing it at a national park. What do you think the big surprises are uh, for, for people who are doing this for the first time? Well, like you said, there is a, there is a big community out there and there, there are lots of resources on the internet in terms of, of RV clubs and um, what you can do and where you can go. Um, it, it's a very tight-knit community, community and um, from what I've seen, they're more than happy to, to help answer any of the questions you have. Do you ever recommend not staying in an RV campground that's associated with a national park and instead staying in a bedroom community because maybe facilities are better? You know, um, that's a that's a good question. And I think that comes down to the individual. But if you're going to a national park, obviously you'd like to stay in a national park um, just because you're surrounded by by wilderness, by nature. Um, you go out into the communities and and not so much, but it depends on you know how big is your RV. You know, is it a thirty five footer that you're pulling with a you know a twenty foot or twenty two foot pickup truck? You know, that's going to be kind of hard to squeeze into some of those national park campgrounds. Whereas if you go out into the community, whether it's a, a KOA or another privately owned um, campground, you know they are set up to to handle probably a wider range of sizes. Plus, they might have more amenities. I don't think you're going to find a swimming pool inside a national park campground. Sure. Yeah. Uh, well, I know that you're always traveling in the national parks. Last summer, it seemed like every other travel news story I read was about, well, really last year, uh, was about chaos at the at the parks, that there were, you know, arches had to close its gates once again because they ran out of parking spots and, and a million more people showed up to Yellowstone than ever before. With the exception of the flooding at Yellowstone, I'm not seeing so many of those stories. I mean, we're seeing a lot about chaos in the travel industry, uh, the, the heat wave in Europe and the terrible problems at airports. But has the National Park Service solved a lot of the problems it had last year? I'm not so sure they have. And, huh. and I say that because, you know, staffing continues to be a problem in some, in some parks. But, you know, you mentioned Yellowstone. I mean, I think that's an incredible story what uh, the Park Service did there in terms of, you know, coping with that incredible flooding back in June and then yeah. being able to to ramp back up and, you know, almost almost back to normal, except for those those two roads in the north. Um, it, it's just a miraculous recovery that they've done. Obviously, they've got a long, long road to go in terms of rebuilding that north entrance road from Gardner down to Mammoth Hot Springs, as well as the, the road from Cook City over to Mammoth Hot Springs. But when you when you look at the 
the videos, the, the aerial shots of the devastation that struck the northern parts of Yellowstone, yeah. you know, in less than a month, you know, they almost had full access to the park and the, the backcountry. You know, some of the problems um, other parks are facing, I mean, we've all been focused on Yosemite National Park these past uh one or two weeks because of the fire near the Mariposa Grove. Oh, yes, yes, sure. And, um, you know, the, the climate change and we're seeing more wildfires and the, the smoke that that produces and and closing some areas of the parks, you know, that that's another thing that the, the Park Service is grappling with. Yeah, absolutely. So with all of that in mind, if somebody listening to this podcast hasn't yet made plans for the summer, and they want to get out into nature, they're very interested in a national park, where should they be going in August and, and September this year? Well, what are the parks that either really have it together or that have special things to see and do at that time of year or that, that are just uh, less visited and so you can get more peace and quiet? Yeah. Big question, you know, I know. Yeah, there's only 400 answers. Um, <laughs> because really when you think about it, Pauline, this is incredible. Last year, roughly 300 million people went to the national park system in the United States. Half of those people, half of those people, 150 million people went to 25 national parks. Hmm. So you think about those numbers and there's a lot of parks out there that aren't crowded and that are just as spectacular as some of these others. I just returned from a a two-week trip. I went to flyover country. I drove from my home in uh, Utah across Wyoming, into Nebraska, across Nebraska, and I circled back and came through Kansas. And that trip took me to Scotts Bluff National Monument in western Nebraska. It's right on the, the border pretty much with uh, Wyoming. And then I went to um, Homestead National Historical Park in Beatrice, uh, Nebraska, the southeast corner, down to Tallgrass Prairie National Preserve in Kansas, and then over to Fort Larned National Historic Site um, in west central Kansas. And, you know, these aren't the big, you know, incredible Vista parks, but they have rich history of America and, and culture, and they, they sure. reflect that. And um, there were no So no what, what do you see? What do you see in those parks? You know, Scott's Bluff is really a, an interesting national monument. It, it basically is tied around the Oregon Trail and the Mormon Trails because they came oh. right through here in the the mid 18th or the mid 19th uh, century mid to late 19th century and you know one of the stories i'm working on i haven't i haven't written it yet but i'm working on it, involves a young man who came there in uh, i think 1861 as a bullwhacker and what a bullwhacker is is you had these um these covered wagon freight trains conestoga wagons that were you know taking um gear and whatnot west and they were pulled by oxen and the bullwhacker was a guy who had to get up in the morning and round up the oxen and put the yokes on and attach them to to the wagons. Um, the young man um, I'm focusing on is uh, William Henry Jackson. And the name caught me because I've, I've been out in the West for, gosh, a long time, <laughs> since the last century. And William Henry Jackson went to Yellowstone with the Hayden Expedition in 1871 and took photographs. Huh. He was there along with Thomas Moran, the the incredible landscape painter. And William Henry Jackson basically traveled the West. I mean, he was taking his photography gear into Grand Teton, today's National Park, Grand Teton National Park. He visited Mesa Verde. He was at Tallgrass Prairie. And you think about it, Pauline, you know, you and I go to a park and we 
pull out our point and sheet shoot or we pull out our, our cell phone and we snap a picture yeah. we look at it we say no nah, that's no good and you, you hit the the garbage can and you take it again i mean here's william henry jackson taking out his dark room which in, you know in required glass slides that were hauled by mules mm-hmm. and wow it wasn't like take a picture and take a look at it and see if it worked or not. I mean, he had to be a, a real professional in photography um, to know what he was doing to, and to know that, you know, his photographs were going to work. And then you had to worry about, you know, these are glass slides. How fragile were they? How many did he break along the way? And the the images that he came back with were, were phenomenal. And he was also an excellent painter. And at Scotts Bluff National Monument, it actually is the repository for William Henry Jackson's artworks and memorabilia and um, this summer they've got they've got a lot of his artworks on on display but he was a fascinating man i mean from bullwhacker to photographer to painter he lived to be 99 years old he flew to europe i mean think about it this is a man who went west with the covered wagon and before he died he was on an airplane flying to europe just a fascinating man amazing yeah, it and really, it sounds it really like a is. fascinating trip. And you also saw the prairies, and you saw them in the company of very few people, you said. So not not too big crowds. I kind of cut you off before you got to that part of the story. Yeah, not, not at all, really. Um, it, it was uh, probably Scott's Bluff I saw the most because a lot of people are, are heading west to go to Grand Teton or go to Yellowstone, and they, they'll pass through there. I met uh, uh, a couple, I think they were from Ohio and uh, passing through and had to stop there and enjoy it. Um, Homestead National Historical Park is, is also a fascinating place because it, it celebrates and memorializes the, the Homestead Act of 1862, which basically the federal government threw open the West and said, you know, wow. if, you, if you can tame 40 acres or 160 acre land for, for five years and prove to us that you, uh, you know, farmed it and made a living there, you could have it for free. And so um, the national park is actually set on what is believed to be the very first homestead issued under the Homestead Act. And that went to Daniel Freeman, a Union soldier, who on January 1st, 1863, the very first day that the Homestead Act took effect, um, showed up and was able to, to claim his 160 acres. And he lived there for, for 40 years or so. And um Quite a quite an and interesting. And so you learned story. about his life, and also about about all the other uh, people who went to try and conquer the frontier. Right, and um, as I mentioned, it's a, a repository for for these records, and so they've got journals and and letters and and deeds and whatnot. And uh, you can you can go online to uh, Homestead National Historical Park and do some research there. And of course, you can you can show up at the the national park and, and do do your own research uh, there in their facilities. Yeah. But um, really a phenomenal place. And the Park Service acquired the property in in the 1930s. And um, I had a discussion with the superintendent about this. But they they restored it to Tallgrass Prairie. So you can't go there and see how how Daniel, you know, tamed the land. Farmed it. Yeah, farmed it. Um, There is a a small orchard there that is representative of um, the orchard that he had, but it's not the actual one. But... um, you know, the tall grass prairie is beautiful. It really is. I mean, it can get to five or six feet tall at the end of summer and uh, hundreds of species of wildflowers. And of course, it, it brings in, you know, almost 100 different species of, of birds, woodland birds and uh, um, grassland wow. birds. So that was really Sounds amazing. Wonderful. It, it really yeah. is. If, and- if you like American history. Absolutely. And you're in Nebraska, which I would think this summer in particular 
probably doesn't get beastly, beastly hot. It's probably, I'm sure it's hotter than usual, but but can I say that it, it's not as prone to heat waves or is that wrong? Um, you know, I don't think any place is um, immune to heat waves this, uh, this year. I it's guess, uh, really, right. really nasty. Yeah. But, um, you know, in, in eastern Nebraska, um, I ran into a little bit of humidity, um, which um, we don't usually have that in the, the southwest where yeah. I live. Um, clouds, but then you've got some nice woodland forests and uh, um, gentle breezes. I mean, uh, every day it was breezy, so it wasn't it wasn't too bad. But um, yeah. from, from Homestead, I went down to Tallgrass Prairie National Preserve, which um, to me is a fascinating place. Um, a few years ago, I wrote a book on, on bison and returning bison to the landscape. And so, you know, they moved through the Tallgrass Prairie, um, when, which once covered 170 million acres of North America. And Tallgrass Prairie not only preserve some of that tall grass prairie, but they also have a bison herd. And so I, I really wanted to see these two working together, so to speak, but, um, mm. a fascinating place. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, it just sounds wonderful. Well, I got to ask you a personal question. I'm going to be going to California, uh, in August because every Ooh. year I, I teach, uh, travel writing at the, uh, book passage travel writers conference, and I'm going to be doing a road trip, uh, going to, see a lot of the redwood forests out there. Uh, any advice in Northern California, a place maybe people don't tend to go but should? Boy, you know, what I usually tell people when they, they mention, raise that question, I point them to, to Lassen Volcanic National Park. It's um, oh. north, of, north of Yosemite. I'm not sure this is a good year to go. They had um, a fire last mm. year, the Dix Dixie Fire, that basically went south to north through the entire park. And wow. um, so roughly, I think roughly half of the park was burned and it's recovering. Mm. But um, a few years ago, my youngest and I went out there and, and I loved it. It is beautiful. Um, it's got a lot of volcanics, obviously. That's where it gets its name from. Um, there were some eruptions there in um, 1919 and I believe 1920 and 21 um, that convinced Congress that hey, yeah, that convinced Congress that this is really an important place that we should preserve in the national park system. And you know, beautiful. And was forest. it also that they didn't want people living too nearby to potential eruptions? Is that another reason it was a park, or not so much? No, I don't think that was the reason. Uh, there were just some huh. some local folks there who really, you know appreciated the the rare geology and the volcanic wonders that was there in active uh active eruptions from time to time and so uh they, they thought it was well worth um preserving and interpreting very interesting and you were just about to say something about the forest there when i broke when i cut in sorry about that no 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 um you know we camped not far from a lake um they, have, they got some beautiful campgrounds up there and um it's really um, a diverse landscape between the, the volcanics and, and the forests and the lakes. It's just beautiful. And, you know, people think of national parks in California and they want to go to Sequoia and they want to go to um, um, Yosemite, of course. Sure. And uh, Lassen is a little less visited than, than those two for sure. Um, Which is important nowadays. Yeah. Well, um, it's it's been so delightful, as always, speaking with you. If people want to get the book, Essential RVing, and is there anything I should have asked you that I didn't about the book before we leave, before we leave this interview? 
Um, you know, it's um, what I like to call a living book because um, I, I work with a, uh, an RV writer. She and her husband have been active RVers for the past seven years. They're out there traveling the country in their RV. They work from their RV. And we envision this as um, a book that's going to be updated annually. And along with, huh. you know, some, along with some of the, the basic information and, you know, planning basics for RVers and how do you plan a national park RV trip, um, we're going to be adding park-specific stories about, you know, this is how you can enjoy this park with an RV. For instance, there are some parks like Sequoia National Park with the, the General's high, Highway. is a very serpentine highway that uh, has some tight curves in it. You're not necessarily going to be able to pull a long RV through there. Um, so we're hoping to be adding some some chapters on specific parks, um, more details, more on the ground experiences on how you can make the most out of your RV vacation in X, Y, or Z National Park. Um, one thing we're also looking at doing and um, is creating an app. Instead of having an ebook, we'll have an app on uh, the Essential huh. RVing Guide to the National Parks. Um, and that way, people get the updates. They'll get the updates, and you know. I think today everybody's familiar with a, a cell phone with all your apps on the desktop, as opposed to um, where did I stick that PDF? <laughs> right, right. Well, it's also an ebook. It's an ebook or a PDF, from what I un understand. Exactly. exactly. Uh, so people can can get it on Amazon and on your site, or or what? How do people find it if they want to find it before it's an app? Absolutely. They can they can go to Amazon.com, um, although um, Amazon takes, uh, uh, I think, roughly a third of the price. Uh, as you know, uh, Pauline, National yes. Parks Traveler is a, a nonprofit news organization, and we get by with um, donations from readers and listeners and uh, products such as uh, the, uh, the Essential Park Guide. But if people go to um, nationalparkstraveler.com um, right now in the, the right sidebar of individual stories, we've got... Um, mention of the essential guide and a, and a link oh, to where they can purchase so it. That's a better place to get it. So you get more of a cut. Right, right. Or if they uh, land on the homepage, um, there's a, a your national parks um, tab at the top of the page. And the very first um, drop down menu on that is traveler collection, traveler collection, apparel and gear. And that will get right. you to, to the, um, the page where you can either order the the PDF ebook, or if you have a Kindle that you want to download it to, um, you can get the the EPUB um, version Terrific. of it right there. All right, it's always a delight to speak with you. Thanks again, Kurt. Thanks for having me, Pauline, and have have a great time in California. I hope you get to enjoy a lot of the national parks and get out of the office. Thanks. I thank you so much for listening. That's it for this week's show, except for a small follow-up note. You may remember a couple of weeks ago, I spoke with Jason about a recent trip I had taken to the Rolls-Royce factory in Derby in the UK. And back then, I had to keep some information embargoed. Well, the embargo is over. I wrote about this in detail on Fromers.com. But what the exciting news was uh, from that visit that I had to keep embargoed, but now I can talk about, is they have a new airplane engine that has a propeller on it that can run on 25% less fuel. And this is something that's not for the distant future. 
It could be in place in airplanes you're flying in the next five years. So I, I left that visit feeling incredibly hopeful. Uh, you can read the whole article on Fromers.com. It goes in deeply, but uh, hopefully not too wonkily about how they were able to create a new engine uh, that is able to be that much more efficient. It's pretty interesting, actually. Uh, so that's my commercial, I guess, for Fromers.com. Please visit us there. We're always grateful that you visit us here. And to those who are traveling, may I wish you a hearty bon voyage. I'll see you next week. Change.